Okay, so if you guys want to go ahead, uh, turn to 1 John. That's where we're going to be, I think, almost for the entirety. As he mentioned, the purpose for this is, is going to be to apply pretty much everything he just laid out. Um, to use these principles of good, sound hermeneutics and see how it is that they actually bless us, right, in our study of Scripture, deepen our understanding of God, our pursuit of Christ. It's not just a heady, scholastic thing. It's something that we can live in our daily lives in, in simple ways and in, in small things. Um, and so that's where we will hopefully end up. Chapter 5 uh, will be the text that we'll read here is going to be chapter 5, verse 16. And then we'll stash it away in the back of the mind and, and revisit it at the end. Um, hopefully it'll maybe actually spark some questions right now. And then we'll seek to answer those throughout. So 1 John 5, 16 says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. So if you're like me at all, the first time I read that, and probably the fifth and tenth time I read that, I, especially out of context, it was kind of jarring. And I didn't, I didn't really know what exactly is he saying here. There's a number of different phrases that were confusing, and it, and it kind of put me in a strange spot. And, and that's okay, but hopefully now... I'm going to take a step back, we'll, we'll revisit at the end, and see how hermeneutics applied to this whole book of 1 John helps explain what that verse actually means. So, so set that in the back, and now we'll do kind of a broad sweep through the whole book, um, and it hopefully won't take super long. But uh, first thing to, to note, right, is the genre. So this is an epistle, which is just the fancy word for a letter. So this is primarily a literal text communicating a message. It's giving instruction. Occasionally, we'll find uh, uses of figurative language or even analogies in, um, in letters. I think in Galatians, uh, Paul explicitly says, now this is an analogy. And then he goes on and uses Sarah and Hagar referencing covenant and promises. Um, so that, that can happen, but when it does, it's going to be pretty well called out. And by and large, though, this is a letter, similar to how we would write letters today. It's going to be straightforward. He means what he says. He says what he means. And, and so we can, by and large, take that to the bank. Uh, the next one question to address would be, so who's the author? It says on the top of the page, First John, so we just immediately know, okay, that's John. But that certainly isn't how it would have presented uh, in its original fashion. This is not one of the letters where the author tells us who it is. Oftentimes, Paul will say, you know, and I, Paul, write this, da-da-da. We don't have that. So, so for 1 John, there is something of a question there. However, I think it's kind of fun, um, this particular question. You really can probe into the text itself and, and just about get to, this must be the Apostle John. Uh, maybe with a question, maybe possibly one other person, and that's just from using the text itself. No appeal to external scholarship required. Uh, so to me, it's kind of a fun, you know, it's a treasure hunt, if you will, which I think there's something of a good illusion there. Proverbs says, seek for the truth and understanding, like treasure, like silver. Um, and so it's fun. I'll, I'll take you through a couple of passages here. The first one, we'll just start at the very beginning. So this is First John chapter 1. Verse, uh, we'll read 1 through 3. This is a really powerful text, but it gives us some hints 
as to who the author would be. So I'm going to go ahead and read 1 through 3. It says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So in addition to being just a really wonderful and rich passage of Scripture, we notice something there. This person is claiming to have seen, to have touched Jesus of Nazareth. So right off the bat, uh, the author of this would have been an eyewitness disciple, somebody who had met the person, Jesus Christ, during his earthly ministry, we've whittled it down somewhat right there, right? Um, an example, actually eight times throughout the book, this, this author refers to his audience as my little children. So that's really interesting. That's, that suggests something of maybe age, wisdom, experience, authority. There's almost a possession, like my children. So that's a clue because a lot of the disciples were martyred, died relatively young. Uh, so we get a little something there. And then one of the other, maybe the hardest to note pieces, but I think one of the most powerful as it points to John himself, is just the similarity of language and writing style. If you, if you compare the epistles of John to the gospel of John, it's, it's remarkable. And you probably noticed some of it even just in that first section there. I mean, a lot of that sounded kind of like John 1, 1 through 5. Uh, so you can, you can feel it there. I, uh, you don't need to turn, but 1 John 4, 9 through 10 Tell me if this doesn't sound familiar from the Gospel of John, right? And this is the love of God that was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And very similar to John 3.16, the language itself. So all of that to say, without having exited the book itself, the text itself, we have a really strong sense of who the author was here. And I think that's pretty cool. It's, it's also a, a good insight, and that's how the scholars go about it too. Uh, right? They start, and well, what can I find in the text itself? And then what other sort of maybe historical data would be available? And so we can have a really high degree of confidence who the author was here. Um, and most of it we could find on our own, just with a careful scrutinizing, scrutinizing eye as we examine the text. The, the time of the writing, um, there's not maybe a whole lot that, that needs to be noted on that, except we've already noted a couple of those things, that this would clearly have been after the ascension of Christ, but before the end of the first century. Uh, probably closer to the end of that, we're getting something, again, this, this author, John, he's referring to these people as his little children. We're getting a sense of a somewhat established church at this point, not, you know, maybe 40 A.D., which is interesting. But the, the audience, I think, is, is an even more important subject for us to, to examine more closely, right? And, and again, we'll note it throughout the entire book, uh, six times, in fact, he refers to the audience as his beloved, which is a pretty powerful um, way to describe people, often used to describe Christians. Go ahead and turn to chapter 5 again, though. We'll look at verse 13. And, and he, he just makes it rather explicit, right? He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And, and that's a very particular but indicative verse um, that, that clues us in 
to the whole body of, of this letter. He's writing primarily to believers. That is the audience. And so when he says things, he, he says them in a way so as to communicate the message to Christians. And when he, he, he will make reference to non-believers, and when he does so, it's in a very explicit and overt manner uh, where he, he just straight up calls out the fact that now these people, these are the sons of the devil. And he refers to them that, um, in that way. And he says, there are those who, who went out from us, but that was just to reveal the fact that they were never with us. So when he makes references to non-believers, by and large, he is very explicit. The next uh, really important piece as it relates to the context here, and, and that's really all we've, we've talked about at this point, is still just kind of establishing that context, is the backdrop of the various heresies that were present at the time. Um, and, and again... Perhaps surprising, but you don't even have to exit the text to get a vast body of wealth as it relates to the false teaching that was present at the time. It's the, kind of towards the end, yeah, the end of chapter one, he just starts laying them out string after string, all of the different false teachings, many of which are still very present today. <coughs> Some were maybe more historically rooted, but again, they... They manifest in, in slightly novel ways, um, even yet today. So a few that I think are, are good just to note, because they inform our understanding. Everything that we read is going to be read in light of these things. Um, and so in, it's going to be starting in chapter 2, verse 4. All right, he says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And uh, so that we could, we could call that antinomianism, uh, which that word is simply, it's against law keeping, right? So it's, Paul talks about them. There are those who, who wanted to say, well, since we've been saved and we're in God's grace, then it doesn't matter, we, the law doesn't have any bearing on our lives anymore. And so he calls it out, he says, that's false teaching. In verse 8, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So any notion of sinless perfection, he just calls it out, he says, that's not, that's not right. Materialism, certainly relevant to today. In verses uh, 15 through 17, he says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. That's not where we're to store up our treasures. And then the last, the last one, rather all-encompassing, uh, a lot of subcategories beneath it. You're probably familiar with the term Gnosticism. right? And so that's a very, goes back to the first century, still very <coughs> relevant to today which was generally an appeal to some sort of divinely given special knowledge. Uh, they, they, they would claim that the scriptures are good, uh, but I'm a prophet of some kind. God has revealed to me in some special, unique way uh, these things that, that are not contained in scripture. One of the particular ones that, that John notes, and this is going to be in chapter 4, verses 2 through 3, it's sometimes referred to as docetism. That's a fancy word. Essentially, all that that means is that they denied the physical reality of Christ. Uh, that, that maybe there was some, some spirit, some, some phantom Jesus figure that came and did these things, but he didn't, he didn't really have a body. He didn't really die. He didn't really go to the cross in this way. And, and, and John addresses this very pointedly when he says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. 
And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So he leaves, he leaves no room for this Gnostic heresy that, that Christ, he came but in some spirit form. He says that is, that is just an outright lie that is not true. And anyone who is confessing that is not, is not speaking with the spirit of truth. With that context, then, we can do a little bit of a deeper dive into to some specific content here. And I think it's good, uh, a quick reminder on, on something that, that Z already mentioned, which there's two traps we need to avoid when we start getting into the examination of, of language and specific words and what they mean. <clears throat> and they're kind of polar opposites, but that's often how it goes. So the, the one, I think a lot of us in this room are probably familiar with, Postmodernism. We talk about it. Some of us joke about it. I like joking about it sometimes. Um, right? But this idea that there is no absolute truth. We can't know for certain uh, words, for example, meanings up to you. What, do you. what does the word mean to you? Okay, well then that's what it means to you. What does it mean to you? Well, that's what it means to you. What's well, a woman, right? So it's, it's pervasive in our society. <clears throat> the alternative, the other trap, would be a, a naive fundamentalism that says, rejects the idea that word meanings could change over time. All right, and we've already seen that that actually is the case. So it's not good enough to just say, well, I looked up in a Greek dictionary, this was the word, and, <coughs> and this, was, this is the, actually the original meaning of the Greek word. Well, the, the Greek that we have in the New Testament is not actually right, the oldest form of Greek. So if you just go in and you find some old meaning of a Greek word, and then try to put that into this text, you may be just blatantly using the wrong definition of the word. So there is a danger on both ends of that spectrum where we could be postmodernistic, rejecting of absolute truth, suggesting that words essentially don't have meaning, we can never know anything, and then on the other end we could, we could go so far, maybe even out of desire to, to combat that, that we end up in, a, in, a, in another untenable, unreasonable place. So we just need to be careful. Uh, this also touches on uh, that, this concept of semantic range, right? That's a, a fun <laughs> phrase that I, I, I enjoy. Speaking to the reality that words can possess within themselves multiple meanings even at the same time. There's all sorts of examples we could use for that. Uh, the one that, that often comes to my mind is, is the word bass or bass. Same spelling, refer to a fish, a low speaking voice, an instrument. Uh, same word, very different definitions depending on context and, and how it's being used. We've mentioned there's biblical examples, right? Justified. <clears throat> when, when Paul uses it in his letters, he's talking about a, a doctrine of justification, how it is that, that we are, are made right, declared righteous before God through Christ. And then James uses the word. And he's, he's referring to like a vindication that, we're, that, that, that the fruit vindicates a profession of faith. Uh, Jesus himself uses the word uh, to refer to the reality that that fruit has on, uh, a re, on an underlying reality and that it's vindicated in the fruit of the thing. So we see that, we know that, but it's so important uh, that, that we don't forget that when we are studying scripture. And so one, I think, really good example of this that we get in the book of 1 John in particular is with the word or the phrase, the world. 
So the word that is used looks like, yeah. okay, 15 times. 15 times in 1 John we have this, the world. Um, and I mean, just off of that, right, you can think of, in English, we use that to mean all sorts of different things. We talk about the wide world of sports or what in the world was that or that's just the world we live in. We use that word world in a host of different ways just in our everyday speech. And, and the Bible can be the same way at times, right, where it's that same word, but it means different things. As he pointed out, in fact, it's, it's so, so much so, we would actually be running into, we would run into a problem where you have verses, maybe two verses, <coughs> same words used, effectively says two different things, if the word meant the same thing in both instances, right? So, so an example here, in one, in one place in 1 John, he says that Christ is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And then just a few verses later, he says, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So it's like, okay, if he's meaning the same thing when he uses the word world there, he's just contradicted himself. Like we're supposed to love the world, but then we're not supposed to love the world. And so clearly the answer to that, the, the resolution there is that, okay, the word world can mean different things depending on the context. And I'm not going to try to answer those questions, although that's a, it would be a, it's a good study to do. Okay, well, what does he mean when he says propitiation for the sins of the whole world versus not loving the world? That's a, that's a really good question to ask. Uh, we would be there for a very long time. So I'm going to not answer that question, demonstrate some measure of self-control. Um, but that, that leads well, I think, into also the, the subject of uh, figurative versus literal language, right? It, it's seemingly obvious, I think, to us often uh, when somebody is maybe speaking in a metaphor as opposed to being literal. But again, it's one of those, <clears throat> the minute you think uh, you've got it is the minute it might catch you, catch you off guard. Um, and, and we do know there are many instances in Scripture where people have argued for hundreds and hundreds, thousands of years at this point, oh, is he speaking figuratively or metaphorically, or is that literal? So it's, if nothing else, it's, it's a good reminder that we need to be aware of those things and not be tempted to just brush by. Um, a particular example that I, I, I like in 1 John that's good to, to clue in on and also introduces a, a connected subject is when, when John says this in uh, chapter 1, he says, This message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. There's obviously figurative language being employed there, um, but it's also a, a, a good thing uh, as it relates to the concept of analogical language um, in, in reference to God himself. There have been times <clears throat> in church history where people were, were very afraid to speak about God in any way uh, because like, well, I don't want to, man, even to say something like God is light, that's, that's, that's good, but, but does that really do it justice? We shouldn't say that. We shouldn't go there. Let's only speak about God in negative terms by saying like he's not evil. Okay, that's safe because he's definitely not evil, but I'm not going to ever say anything overtly about God. And yet here we see that's, that's not necessarily a good standard to have because the Bible does that, right? The Bible uses analogies to speak about the character of God, who He is, and His being. Um, and so it's a good, I, I, I appreciate that we have an example of that in First John here. Uh, 
this is probably uh, the most helpful piece as it relates to examining content, which is looking out for instances where the author just tells you. He, he answers the question, essentially, where he says, this is why I'm writing. Like, I've written this letter. Here's why I wrote it. Here's what I want you to pay attention to. And John does that at least five, six times uh, in his letter. Uh, I won't read all of them to you, but it is the same phrase over and over again where he says, I write these things to you. We are writing these things to you so that. I've written this to you so that. Um, and I think one of the ones that you'll find repeated throughout are in what you might call these if statements where he's describing the nature and the marks of a true Christian versus one who, uh, someone who is maybe professing to be a believer, but then nothing in their life backs up uh, that claim. And so we see both the mere repetition of the phrase itself with the fact that he is, he's just overtly and expressly telling us, this is why I have written to you, and so I want you to pay attention to it. Um, one that I do think is, is worth reading would be uh, from chapter 2, verse 26, because it's something we've already touched on, right? And it's this, <clears throat> he says, I, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So again, this context of in the world and in the church, there are people who are actively spreading falsehoods as it relates to the person of Christ, the Word of God. And so, so John is wanting us to know that, that give us a warning that is going to happen. You need to be alert and ready to respond to it. Uh, the assurance of salvation is also a, a repeated uh, message in this. We already read 1 John 5.13, right, where he said, I'm writing these things to you who believe that you may know that you have eternal life. So to, to latch on to this truth that the knowledge, the assurance of our salvation in Christ, that awareness in and of itself is something that is promised. It's available. We may not always experience that. We may not always be cognizant and aware of it ourselves, but that's, that's because of our fallen sinfulness. Uh, that's not because God has created this in such a way where we can't ever know. And so we see that uh, in the text itself, which is, yeah, which is an incredible encouragement. Tapping into another thing that Z mentioned, right? There's, there's certainly only one uh, interpretation of any particular text, but there are uh, no doubt many applications that could be made in the individual's life. Um, and I think about one of those if-then statements that, that John uses in teaching. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So the meaning of each one of those texts is pretty plain on its face, right? Uh, if we say these things, but then we walk in this way, then there's a contradiction and, and the truth is not in us. An application to that, I mean, is going to be available for every individual person as they can reflect uh, upon their own life and, and then see how that fits with the text, but, but not using their circumstance say, oh, well, since I am experiencing X, Y, and Z, then this is what the text means. It's always making sure that we have the, the order right where, okay, the text says 
this. Uh, if I say that I love God, but, but the fruit of my life is nothing but hatred towards God, I should now apply that and, and do some introspection and say, okay, what, what's going on here? Because there's the word says one thing and my life is demonstrating something entirely different. And so seeking to be faithful to the word, how do I, what does that mean for me? So that's an application, not an interpretation of the text where we use the interpretation to uh, come to an application in our lives, but not the other way around. Uh, and John certainly is very helpful that way. It's a very practical letter and uh, that it gives a lot of instruction for the Christian uh, it, we've talked about it a little bit, but it, it certainly can be challenging, right? It can be challenging to have confidence that we're coming to correct interpretations at every instance, which <clears throat> I think is a great reminder for the value of this kind of thing right here, the value of the local church, right? The corporate reading, corporate studying, the preaching of the word is super important. Uh, going to our local church pastors or local church elders <clears throat> being able to ask them questions when we have uh, concerns or, or, or worried that, may, I don't know, am I, am I reading this wrong? You know, those are good things to do, not, not things that we should be afraid of or ashamed of because we're maybe wrestling with a particular text. Like We should be willing to, to you know, maybe do some hard work on our own, uh, on our own personal study, but then thank, be thankful to God and, and rejoice in the fact that He's given us many wonderful gifts, and that includes the local church and pastors and elders and, and brothers and sisters who we can look to. Um, and we have, uh, thank, thankfully today also, we have things like the internet that can also be a wonderful resource. It's, it would it, be an easy one to overuse. It would be an easy one to uh, have become a crutch in our lives. But, but recognizing there are wonderful things like Blue Letter Bible. You guys probably have heard me talk about Blue Letter Bible before. Wonderful website, it's the Bible, but it's got links to a ton of different resources, commentaries, places you can go to just expand your personal study of Scripture that I think is wonderfully, uh, wonderfully edifying. Most of the famous historical commentaries, Matthew Henry, John Calvin, you can find most of these things online for free. Great, it's, you know, it's not the Word of God, but, but a helpful tool in your own personal study as we seek to apply uh, these, these principles of sound hermeneutics. So... With that, we'll finally here revisit the 1 John 5.16. So I'll read it again, and then, and then we'll kind of walk through the, uh, the necessary elements and hopefully arrive at an edifying uh, conclusion. So 1 John 5.16 again says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. So, first of all, a few uh, theological guardrails, if you will. Right? We've talked about letting Scripture interpret Scripture. So, <clears throat> whenever we have questions about one particular verse, we go to those clear passages. We use the clearer passage to understand the, the less clear passages. But, but some guardrails, right? Uh, the Bible clearly teaches that any amount of sin is, is too much, right? Any, we have a perfectly holy God. So any amount of sin, however small it may be in, from a human perspective, would render one completely guilty um, and, and deserving of 
of eternal damnation, right? So we, we, at no point in our trying to understand this text can we set that clear and plain teaching of Scripture aside. We have to, we have to remember that. Um, another example necessary to that, right? And so the only way, the, the good news is the fact that Jesus Christ did what we couldn't do, right? And so it's by grace through faith in Christ alone that anyone can be declared righteous before a perfectly holy God. So we can't set that aside at any point, right? These are quite literally gospel truths that we have to hold fast to as we seek to understand this. I think another really important, right, is, is the, the biblical teaching, true believers, those who have been brought from death to life by God, by His Spirit, by His grace, freely given, unmerited, not deserved, don't lose their salvation. They don't, we don't have any power to undo what God has done. Um, it's not the manner in which He works, right? All those whom He justified, He also glorifies. Uh, he will finish the good work that He has begun. No one can take them out of the Father's hands, right? We have so many plain and clear teachings of Scripture that, that show uh, that truth and that reality, and so we hold on to that and we say, okay, so that's true. That's, that's the Word of God, and it's true. So we don't ever set that aside, right? Um, so those are just like big, high theological guardrails, but I, I think it's so important that we set those up front because they're going to be very helpful in our understanding of what this verse means. Um, some more particulars uh, to First John. This is just kind of reminding of what we, all the things we just talked about, right? This letter, primarily written to Christians. That's the primary audience here. It's not primarily written to non-believers, so we've got to remember that. And in fact, it was just three verses prior when he expressly said, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So, we have that. We talked about semantic range. Well, there's some words in this verse that have a semantic range to them, multiple possible meanings. Death. I, we, may, we may have jumped to one meaning when we read the word death. We might have thought eternal spiritual death in hell. Maybe we, maybe we jumped to just dying bodily. Both of those are possible meanings of the word death, right? It could be a corporal death. It could be a spiritual death, temporal death, eternal death. All of those are theoretically possible meanings of the word death. So just being aware of that, very, very helpful. And we'll seek to, to answer that. Um, another really big one. What we gravitate, I gravitate towards the, the, the parts of the verse that are like shocking or confusing and the thing like the sin that leads to death, sin that doesn't lead to death, what? To such an extent that I I overshadow some of the other pieces that are actually in here, right? He says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin leading to death, he shall ask God, he shall pray, and God will give him life. And then at the end, now to this guy, uh, well, I don't say you should pray for that. So actually, at the beginning and the end of this, he's, he's, he's giving instruction for prayer. I skipped that the first 10 times I read the verse because I was just all about sin that leads to death. What the heck is that? And, and totally skipped over the fact that he's actually giving instructions for how believers ought to pray. Um, and so that is very important. So there's sort of a, a framework of things. And it's like we haven't even gotten to, so what does it mean? <laughs> but it's like these are all of the things that are, are rightly considered before we get to that point, right? So first, maybe outlining one thing that it certainly does not mean, right? It, it certainly does not mean that, oh, well, there's some sins that aren't that big of a deal, and if you commit those sins, you're fine. 
And then there's other sins. Those are really bad. Those are the sins that damn people to hell. And if you commit those, okay, well then you need saving. And that, that's what the verse means. And that's what <clears throat> many, many people, in fact, entire religious systems are built around the concept that some sins are damning, others are not. Um, and, that's, and that's obviously very, very dangerous. And I think for, for many, many people, it, it could very well keep them from the beautiful truth and reality of the gospel that, oh, wait, no, that small little thing that I did that, that nobody else ever saw, that nobody ever heard about, the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for that sin so that I didn't have to. And, and yet, a false interpretation of this verse says, not a big deal, don't worry about it, you're good. Um, so, so that's out. That, that didn't even make it to the, it doesn't get to the consideration set. Because there is going to be a consideration set here, as we've talked about. Sometimes there are <coughs> challenging verses where uh, a level of humility would have us say, you know what, there's actually... There's a few different options here that all fit within the realm of orthodoxy and we're all going to, you know, I think it's good to develop a conviction and come to a point where you say, well, this is, this is what I think, but, um, but we don't have to be dogmatic and, and, uh, and insulting in how we use that. But, but there are some interpretations that are abundantly incorrect. <laughs> so we should call those out and not allow ourselves to go there. Um, so there's really two that I do want to offer to you as, uh, as what I would say are certainly within the realm of biblical orthodoxy in terms of uh, <clears throat> understanding this particular text. They both seek to consider the context of the whole book um, and then arrive at a conclusion that emphasizes the thing that John is intending to emphasize um, and they seek to do that faithfully. So the first one would be uh, effectively that this verse is, especially at, uh, in the latter section, referring to uh, an, an unbeliever. Just, just that simply this is a, the, the one who commits the sin that leads to death. That, that is a person who is outside of the faith, always has been, unrepentant and unregenerate. And they're just persisting and continuing to practice sin. And, and the, the appeal, the contextual appeal, appeal here is that, well, this is what John's been outlining in the whole book. He's been giving us the marks of the true Christian and <clears throat> contrasting that with false professors. And so here we have an example of that where there's a person who's just living in a woefully unregenerate, unrepentant life. They're not a believer. And that's, that will ultimately, should they persist to the end, that will result in their death. Um, and so that's, I think, a, uh, it's an orthodox, biblical perspective to take. Um, the other option would be that actually this verse is referring to Christians throughout. And so its appeal, it, it primarily is closer in its contextual appeal, right? Verse 13 that expressly said, hey, I'm, I'm writing this to you believers who believe. So I want, I want you to know that you have eternal life. You have eternal life. And then in the verse itself, it says you see a brother committing a sin. So it's, it's very much leaning into the brother, the language of the Christian, the fact that this letter has been written to Christians. And it says that, this, that the death in view here is a corporal death. <clears throat> and that, and it, it's saying that our prayer, right, is it's connected, in fact, to church discipline here. And so that if we see a brother, a, 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 another Christian, living in a, in a manifestly unrepentant way, that that church discipline would be exercised. And that the end of that church discipline process, uh, 
would at, would at a certain point be their removal from the church. And Paul refers to that um, in one of his letters as handing the man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. <clears throat> so we have biblical teaching that says, uh, and it says, right, so that his soul may be saved in the day of the Lord. So, so Paul teaches us that actually one of the possible very sad uh, from a human perspective, outcomes of church discipline is that the true Christian would, would essentially would have the guardrail, the protective guardrail of the church removed. And, and then in a, that they would then experience in an unmitigated way the, the consequences, the natural corporal consequences for their sinful lifestyle to the point that it may result in their physical death because that would actually be better. For the true Christian, that that they would that that God in His grace and mercy would would actually bring about their swifter physical death, so that way they would be immediately brought into His presence. And and so there is Scripture, especially outside of First John, that that sort of outlines that reality. Um, and so there's a little bit of an importation of that into this passage, in addition in addition to the the language of it having been written primarily to Christians. Um, and so it makes the, the argument that we're talking about all Christians, but it's corporal death. It's a temporal death being spoken of, not <clears throat> hell. Um, so I think both of those are, uh, are seeking to apply sound hermeneutics. Uh, they stay within the guardrails of orthodoxy, um, and they, they disagree. And in studying, there is a, a feels almost like a pretty even split between a lot of the theologians that many in this room enjoy. Uh, this guy says this, this guy says that. So it's, it's interesting, but one of the things that both of those perspectives get is they don't actually sit in that question very long. <clears throat> they give it like one or two sentences. They kind of state their perspective. Uh, this is talking about an unbeliever and it's unrepentant sin leading to their ultimate spiritual death. Or the other one just says, this is referring to corporal death of a Christian and it's church discipline, blah, blah. But then they, they, they emphasize how this is instruction on prayer for the Christian and how we should respond in prayer when we see people, see people living manifestly sinful lives. We should pray that God would convict them of their sin, that he would bring about their repentance in their heart, uh, and then ultimately that, that a restoration or that a regeneration for the first time would happen. And, and so in that way that we don't miss the forest for the trees because we get so wrapped up in, oh, whoa, sin that leads to death, that's interesting. What does that mean? And, and you just, and you end up missing the edifying peace, which was, this is, this is elderly Pastor John, you know, teaching to the young flock, to his children, giving them instructions for how to actively live out their faith and how to be able to discern truth from lie um, and how to pray for people. Uh, and, and they miss that entirely because they're, they're, they're more interested in just Kind of getting caught up in the in the exciting or the novel, um, and so I think that uh, for me is one of the maybe one of the cautions that, that comes with this whole thing. And 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 what again, good hermeneutics actually helps us do is it helps us ask the right questions to major in the major, to minor in the minors, and and not get uh, confused about what the purpose is here. And it it's a very helpful return to the the right emphasis, that one true meaning, and then, and then we apply that uh, in our lives. So that is my walkthrough on uh, First John with a little bit of a 
and examination on 516.